Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. The communists imprisoned a man by the name of Richard Wombrand for 14 years and tortured him because he preached the Bible. And when they set him free, he continued to preach the scriptures and started a ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs. And much of that ministry had to do with publishing a lot of books about the suffering, the torture that Christians are undergoing presently all around the world because they love this book and they study this book and they won't give it up. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading another one of his books. I read them from time to time just to inspire me about what it means to pay the price of Christian living. And this book called The Overcomers. And in this book, he tells the story of a pastor and two Christian girls from his church who are arrested by the Chinese communists in Qingxing, communist China for reading the Bible. And the communists, to mock Christianity, told the pastor that he would be set free if he would shoot the two girls in his church. And he said he would. And he, they handed him a revolver, and as he cocked the revolver to shoot these two girls, one of them said this, You baptized us, taught us the Bible, and gave us Holy Communion. May God reward you for all the good things that you have done. All of us are sometimes weak and fail. Later, when you regret what you're about to do to us, do not despair like Judas, but repent like Peter and be forgiven. Always remember that our last thoughts of you were of love and thankfulness for all that you have done for us. And then the pastor shot the two girls. Now here's my question. Why did those two girls forgive this man and keep on loving him? Why? But we all know why. Because Jesus said so in the New Testament. That's why. But the question we all face this morning is this. How do you know he said that? Are you sure? There are plenty of people around, critics of the Bible, who will tell us that, Oh, all these words were put into Jesus' mouth centuries later. He didn't say these things. In fact, Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code says that Jesus was married and had children. And all these things that you read about him in the Bible, they're not accurate. They were written in the ninth century by the church for political and theological reasons. Most of you probably believe what Jesus said about life after death in heaven. But how do you know he said that? 
What if that was just made up and put into his mouth? Most of you believe God forgives sins and is a loving God. But how do you know that? No other religious book in the world describes God that way. And you don't get that looking at nature, do you? Nature is cruel and unforgiving and unloving. Nature is survival of the fittest. You don't get that idea of God from looking at the world around you. You only get it from this book. So how do you know that Jesus actually taught that? I think Christians get a little schizophrenic here. Just track with me a moment. They want to believe what Jesus said about heaven and want to believe that God is loving and forgiving of anything because of what the Bible says. But when it comes to morality, they want to look at the Bible and say, oh, that's just old. It's just men's thoughts. It's not true. That's schizophrenia. You can't have it both ways. And so this morning, we're at a tipping point in life and in Christianity. Because if this book is merely the words of men, full of errors and contradictions, then you don't know anything for sure. Only if it is the word of God from his mouth do you know any of these things that you cling to. So how do you know? Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 20, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This teaches that the Bible, though written in human words by men, they spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, driven by the wind, the breath of God. It's saying that the origin of all they wrote is from God's breath, God's mouth. They were the vehicle, but the content of it came from the mouth of God. Paul teaches the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which is a tipping point verse in the Scriptures for us. There Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting in behavior, doctrine, and training in right living, our righteousness in God's eyes. The Greek word that for God breathed, all scripture is God breathed, is theo nuestros. Theo, God, nuestros, breath. God breathed. In other words, the claim is that this book comes from the mouth of God. That's why we call it the word of God. Ever wondered why we call the Bible the Word of God? Because it's God-breathed. It is the Word of God. Still, what's the evidence for this huge claim about what we know and don't know? Well, the biggest reason that I believe the Bible is God's Word is because Jesus believed it was. I first believed in Jesus, then I believed what Jesus believed, and Jesus believed... The Bible is the Word of God. He quoted the Old Testament when he was being tempted by the devil. 
he faced the devil's lies by quoting scripture that he was steeped in all of his life. He met the temptations and the lies of the devil with the word of God. And then later he corrected the Sadducees who didn't believe in life after death. He said to them, you do not believe in life after death because you don't know the word of God. So he corrected them with the word of God. And he corrected the Pharisees with all their confusion about earning your way to heaven and about what was right and wrong and ritual. He continually corrected them with the memorized, the word of God that he had memorized. If you believe in Jesus, you believe the Bible is God's word. Otherwise, you're schizophrenic. But of course, that's a circular argument, isn't it? By that I mean you're using the words the Bible says Jesus said to prove the Bible. That assumes what Jesus said actually he said. That's a circular argument. So what evidence is there that Jesus said these things and that the rest of the Bible is trustworthy? Well, the first piece of evidence is the Bible is that the Bible came from God's mouth is all the fulfilled prophecies in it. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is unique among all religious books in the world. Unique. And that it is full of prophecies about the future that actually came true. You don't find prophecy in Koran. You don't find prophecy in Buddhism or Hinduism. I don't know if you know this. But prophecy is unique to the Bible alone. There are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. And all but 500 of them have been fulfilled. And the 500 that haven't been fulfilled all have to do with Jesus' second coming. 2,000 prophecies fulfilled. You can count on the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's coming. Those are the only ones remaining. How is it possible that prophecies given centuries before the event are fulfilled? Only if this book came from the mouth of God. Only God could do that. By the way, there are going to be people who say, well, Edgar Cayce and Gene Dixon, they made a lot of prophecies that came true. Anybody who knows those prophecies know that they were so general, like, we're going to have a recession. Well, eventually that's going to happen. But when you look at the specific things they said and how much of it came true, studies have been done of this, 11%. Just 11%. In the Old Testament, if you made a prophecy and it didn't come true, you were dead. Because it means you lied. Because whatever God says comes true, 100% of the time these prophecies came true. Now I want to get a little technical on you. I want to tell you just, I love prophecy. I want to just tell you a few of the prophecies that came true. Did you know that 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians? Even invented. The world didn't even know what crucifixion was. 1,000 years before that, David, in Psalm 
34 and Psalm 22 describe the crucifixion of Jesus in detail. You can look it up yourself and read it. 1,000 years before it was invented. Now, how do you explain that? Only that the Bible is the Word of God. Or take Isaiah 44, verse 28. Get this. It predicts that Cyrus would come and conquer unconquerable Babylon, who had two sets of walls around 194 square miles, two walls 90 feet thick. Nobody thought it would ever be conquered. The Bible says in Isaiah 44, a guy named Cyrus would come along and conquer it. This was 150 years before Cyrus was born. Nobody even knew his name. And nobody knew he would be a conqueror. The Bible predicts it. And it happened. Have you ever met a Hittite or a Moabite? Anybody know a Moabite? Of course not. They don't exist. The reason they don't exist, they have vanished from the planet. At one time they did exist, but their countries were conquered. And no people in history who are without a country have ever stayed in existence. No people. Except the Bible prophesies that Isaiah, that Israel one day, though it had no country, would have a country and would stay in existence. And in 1945, that prophecy came true. That prophecy was made 2,500 years ago. For 2,000 years, Israel had no country. Nobody has ever stayed together as a people except Israel. And in 1945, they had their land again. And Israel today is fulfilled prophecy. How do you explain that? Words of men? 2,500 years before it happens? It's only possible that Ezekiel and Ezekiel 37 could be right because it is the Word of God. I guarantee you that critics of the Bible know nothing of prophecy. The next time somebody says the Bible's full of myths and error, ask them what they know about prophecy. I guarantee you they know nothing. Did you know there are more than 332 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament? 332. They are prophecies about what town he would be born in, how he would be born, what kind of family he would have, what kind of ministry he'd have, how he would die and that he would rise from the dead. How do we know, though, that these prophecies were written before his birth and not made up by the church after he lived? How do you know that? Maybe somebody 500 years later in the church wrote them in the New Testament after the fact, and that's why it looks like they were fulfilled, but they really weren't. How do you know that? Well, I know that because the Old Testament in approximately 250 B.C. was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And the reason was Jews had forgotten how to speak Hebrew. Greek was the world language like English is today. And so 70 scholars got together and they took the Old Testament in Hebrew and translated it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. 
for 70 scholars. And that fixed the content for sure of the Old Testament. So we can look at the Septuagint and we know for sure that was the content of the Old Testament in 70 and 250 BC. And all of these prophecies are in the Septuagint just like in our Old Testament. There's no question. They were written before Jesus fulfilled them. There's a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner who's written a book called Science Speaks. I recommend it to you. He's a mathematician and he's figured out the mathematical possibility of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 332 prophecies he fulfilled in the New Testament. And Stoner says... The probability of that is 1 in 10 raised to the 17th power. You see the number on your screen? I can't even say that number. And you want me to believe that this just happened by coincidence? If you want to know the probability of fulfilling all 332, (laughs) forget it. To give us the some idea of how big this uh, this number is, Stoner says that number on the screen is enough silver dollars to cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars. Mark one of them with an X, mix it up somewhere in Texas, blindfold somebody and tell them, go pick it out. You get one chance, pick it out. The chances of them blindfolded picking out that silver dollar is that number. Prophecy is incredibly powerful to show that this Bible comes from the the mouth of God because only God could do this. Secondly, the science of archaeology consistently proves the Bible is accurate and not mythical and the critics are the ones who are wrong. 2 Peter 1 verse 16 says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Well, you hear the Bible is full of myths and and errors. But the truth is the Bible fulfills the historical accuracy test with flying colors. The Bible makes... Hundreds of references to people, places, and events. And time after time, archaeology proves the Bible is right and the critics wrong. A famous archaeologist by Nelson, by the name of Nelson Gleck said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted the Bible. I've done a lot of study of this. I spent two sabbaticals at Hebrew University in Jerusalem studying archaeology with archaeologists there, atheistic archaeologists. One day in class, one of them said, today we as archaeologists take the Bible, even though we don't believe it, and look at its references as clues as to where to start begin, begin digging in Israel. As clues. I could name, I stayed at the William F. Albright Institute of Archaeology. He's one of the most famous archaeologists in history. 
William F. Albright was an atheist till he began to study archaeology. Archaeologists who are not believers begin their work in archaeology and begin to trust this book, and many of them become believers like William Ramsey, went to the Middle East to prove the Bible was wrong and came back a believer. For example, 50 years ago, secular scholars dismissed the Hittites as a figment of fiction in the Old Testament, just mythical, said they never did existed, and then they dug up the ruins of the Hittite empire. You may be surprised to know that until recently, critics said that Pontius Pilate never existed. Pontius Pilate. If you don't know this, he's at the center of the trial of Jesus. He's the Roman governor who put Jesus on trial. And so much of the Old Te- uh, New Testament about the life of Jesus includes him. Critics said, no, he never existed. And then in Caesarea Philippi, and those of you who've gone to Israel with me have seen this in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem, they found stones with Pontius Pilate's name on it. Did you know that critics of the Bible said David never existed? King David, one of the key people in the Old Testament, never existed. Then they found stones, the kingdom of David, the empire of David. You can see those stones in the Israeli museum today. Categorically, not one discovery of archaeology has ever contradicted the Bible. You may hear initially of it, but just give it time. And then you find out it supports the scriptures. There are more than 2,500 archaeological sites about the Bible. Not a single discovery has ever proved anything in the Bible is false. You cannot say that about the Book of Mormon. It's all about tribes and things that happened in the Americas, and supposedly in 500 B.C., not one single archaeological discovery supports any of that. The Bible fiction? The Bible unreliable? Third, the evidence for the Bible is that there are eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus, eyewitnesses who saw his ministry, who were still alive when the New Testament documents were being circulated. And the New Testament documents are full of embarrassing information that is counterproductive to the argument of Christianity. That's really key. Because if you were making up a story, you would sanitize it of anything that might be used to argue against Christ. But the New Testament is full of counterproductive material. How do we know the stories about Jesus are not merely fiction and made up later? Well, for one good reason, the Gospels and the letters of Paul were being circulated within 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death. We know this for sure because history says for a fact that Paul was beheaded in Rome in 66 or 67 B.C. 
We know for a fact that the temple of of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Not a word is mentioned in the Gospels or the letters of Paul about the destruction of the temple. That would be like newspapers today never having reported 9-11. Such a huge event in American history. And to be ignored, and in our history books, not going to happen. That was almost the destruction of Judaism. And it's not mentioned. Even though Jesus prophesies that the temple will be destroyed... Now, if you were making this all up and later in the ninth century writing it, wouldn't you put this in? See, Jesus prophesied the temple was destroyed. And guess what it was? You would have used that as evidence. Not a word is mentioned about it because it was all written before then. Now, we know that the Gospels were being circulated within 30 or 40 years. And that means... in. The scriptures challenge from time to time. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Go ask people. There are people still alive who saw it. If what was written in the Gospels was not true, Christianity would have been dead in the gate. People would have stood up and said, no, he never said that. It would have gotten nowhere. Eyewitness accounts with people who were still alive. It's really interesting that even those critics, Roman and Jewish critics of Christianity, writing in the first century, get this, never dispute the content of the Gospels about Jesus' life and His teaching. Never. Instead, they use that teaching to say, see, He was a heretic. See, He was an imposter. He claimed to be God. This resurrection stuff... They all use that material against Christianity, confirming, in fact, this is what Jesus did and said. That's why they killed him. There's another factor that's compelling to me. And I want to tell you, over the years as I've studied the Bible, I stand before you. All the study I have done on the Bible and archaeology and all the rest, if I ever found that the Bible was a lie, I'd give up the faith like that. I'd give it up. But the more I study, the more sure I am. These are compelling evidences. And the other is this. The Gospels are full of embarrassing information that's damaging to the argument of the deity of Jesus. If you're making something up, you don't put in it damaging information. Let me give you a couple of examples, just one. The Bible says that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ are women. Now, don't get upset. Hang with me. In the first century, women were considered inveterate liars and totally untrustworthy in their testimony, and they were not allowed to testify in court. I'm just reporting the facts. If you are making up the resurrection... Would you make women the first witnesses? No way. It's reported that way because that's what happened. There's another factor that's very important. And this gets a little technical on you, but I'll say it anyway. 
C.S. Lewis, who for years was an atheist and was a professor of literature, 16th, 15th, and 14th century literature at Oxford University. And his specialty was mythology. That's his specialty. Along with Tolkien, who was at Merton. Both Christians became Christians. Lewis says this, and I quote, I have been reading myths and romances and legends all my life. And I know what they are like. And I know that not one of them is like the Bible. And in a great essay called Fern Seed and Elephants, it's a funny essay. He challenges all these so-called Bible critics with this question. He said, I have read myths all my life. How much myth have you read? And you know what the answer is? Zero. People accusing the scriptures of being mythological have never studied myth. The guy who has, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis says, no, this is not myth. Here's why he says this. He points to, as an example, to John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. Now stick with me here. The Bible tells this story as Jesus kneeling on his knees and writing with his finger in the dirt... And then John does nothing with that. He just leaves it as a detail in the story. Lewis says that either John is simply reporting what he saw, or he's someone who is 19 centuries ahead of his time in writing fiction. Do you know why? This kind of writing technique where you insert interesting details to keep the interest of the, uh, of the reader was only invented in 19th century fiction. Lewis says it was nowhere on the planet before that. You will not find this kind of writing anywhere. So either he was reporting exactly what he saw or Luke was 19 centuries ahead in the technique of writing fiction. you got to make up your mind which it is. Once in a while I find people who say the Bible is full of myth and what they actually mean is the Bible has incredible miracles in it. That's what they really mean. It's full of myth. What they really mean is, look at all these miracles in it. Nobody can believe those things happen. Like the parting of the Red Sea and Jesus walking on water and healing people. I heard a great story about a schoolgirl who graduated from high school in Ohio and went to Ohio State University. And the first day of class, one of her professors began to bang the Bible as myth. And he started out, True story started out saying this whole idea that God parted the Red Sea and Moses walked through it and then the Egyptians were drowned, that's ridiculous. What really happened is they went across the Reed Sea. It's a little north. It's just a marshy ground area and the water's only five inches deep. That's what they went through. And all the time she's saying, you know, my faith is shaken. And she's telling the story. And evidently her pastor at the other, on the other end of the phone is laughing. And he's going, fantastic. That's wonderful. Terrific. And finally she stops and she says, why are you saying that? And the pastor said, 
because you've got an atheistic professor who believes God could drown the Egyptian army in five inches of water. That's terrific. (laughs) Is it myth just because it's a supernatural miracle? Not if you believe in God who created the universe. So here's the question. With all of this compelling evidence, really overwhelming evidence, why do so many people, and surely some of you, say the Bible is full of errors and just the writing of men's and is not the Word of God? Why? It's not because you studied the evidence. C.S. Lewis admitted that when he was an atheist, he rejected the Bible not because of the evidence, because he but because he hated the word interference. He didn't want God interfering with his moral life. I wonder if the reason so many people call this not the word of God but the words of men is because we hate the word interference too. I don't want God interfering with me. Aldous Huxley, who was a follower of Darwin and who rejected the Bible as mere myth, admitted this. We objected to the Bible because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I believe that is really the truth. I don't want it telling me what to do. I tell you this. I heard this a long time ago, and it's so true. The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. I can categorically say that I have never met a person who rejects the Bible, who has either spent much time reading it or has studied the evidence. It's always because human nature resists interference with our moral life. What happens when we reject the authority of God's word in our life? What's the result of that? I don't think I have to spend much time describing the moral chaos that is around us and the ruin that is in our life and probably in our lives here this morning because we would not surrender to the Word of God. One of my favorite quotes is from St. Teresa of Avila. She says, get this, The Bible is God's map back to the Garden of Eden. Back to the Garden of Eden. Abundant life in our relationships that are fractured, in our families, in our marriages that aren't everything they are meant to be. The Word of God is the map back to the Garden of Eden. You can't buy it. You can't buy the Garden of Eden. We're trying to do it in America, and we can't buy it. This is the map. As you come humbly under its authority, you begin 
to come back into the garden. Some of us have a lot of pain in our life because we have been disobedient. And others of us are on a road we've been on before that caused wreckage in our life. And here we are on the road again. Because we don't want interference from the Word of God. Oh, I beg of you. Get in one of these Bible studies that you can sign up for in the lobby. And begin to absorb the Word of God and humbly come underneath it. Because it's your only hope of repair and of building the Garden of Eden in your life. Humility is in short supply. I tell you, the quickest way to test whether you have humility or pride is how you react to the commandments of God. I tell you this. You will never merely float along in life to the Garden of Eden. You won't float there. You will not float there. I read a story a couple of weeks ago, a true story about Glenda and Robert Lennon. They were four miles off the coast of Florida and their yacht, in their yacht when Glenda decided to take a swim, they were anchored on a reef way out there and she jumped in while her husband was underneath uh, down below working. And as soon as she jumped in, she realized there was a strong current there and it was taking her rapidly out to sea. And she screamed for help from her husband. And he, who was a a champion swimmer, without thinking, jumped in to save his wife. But as he swam out there, he realized this current was too strong. So they made a plan. Because she wasn't a strong swimmer. She would just float, save her strength. And he would swim against the current. And when the current changed, he hoped he'd have enough strength to get back to the yacht. And so for six hours, he swam against the current just to try to keep their yacht in sight. He needed to keep it in sight to have any hope. And after six hours, the current changed. And he got to the boat exhausted, but night had fallen. And there was no way he could find his wife. He didn't know it to the next morning, but the current had swept her 20 miles away from their yacht. The Coast Guard incredibly found her the next morning still alive. They both survived because he swam against the current. If he had not, they both would have been lost. So many of you are floating with the current When you need to stand up against your boyfriend, against friends, against the currents of this culture, but you're floating farther and farther away from Jesus Christ because you are not swimming against the current with this book. It takes effort to live the Christian life. And I tell you this, you have to swim against the current with God's word. I hope you do that. Because it's the only way to the Garden of Eden. Well, we're going to take an offering now, but before I do, let me pray for us.
Lord, it breaks my heart when I read the stats on how many Christians never read their Bible and don't know anything really about it. I pray we'd be a different kind of church. And I pray around this worship center this morning, we would decide we have to marinate ourselves in your word and to trust it and to begin to surrender our life to it in every way that you might be able to bless us and that we would be a credit to you, Lord, our witness. Help us to be people of the book. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of Dr. Mike from Compass Church in Salinas. We hope you're encouraged by his practical Bible-based teaching 